First uh, Samuel chapter number 16. Y'all remember what we were looking at last week? Anna gets past. She wasn't here. obedience was still disobedience right right and then he blamed it on everyone else god made his will abundantly clear and he still disobeyed him and so i said last week it was kind of a second chance for saul he had uh he had already messed up a couple times but god is long suffering and so he was giving him really not a second chance but third or fourth chance right and uh, after he disobeyed um he tried to maintain his innocence he tried to blame everyone else but then finally judgment was passed and Samuel told him, God has rejected you. Uh, you're no longer king and God has chosen someone after his own heart, a man that is better than you. And being insecure and proud like Saul is, could you imagine what it would be like for him to hear God has chosen someone better than you? Mm-hmm. You know, at first he was like, oh, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm the least of least tribe, the least of my family and all this. But by this time, he was no longer at least, was he? Mm-hmm. And so he said, God has chosen someone better. And so we saw kind of Saul's demise. Uh, he's still on the throne, but he's not honored by God anymore. Right. And so now our attention is going to turn from Saul to David. Right. And we're going to see how God brings David to the throne. And I've said in past weeks that I believe that God had chosen David long before this, that God had made provision for a king all the way back in the law, a long time before this. And he had planned for there to be a king. And even whenever uh, we were dealing with Jacob and his children, it was Judah that was going to be the one that had a ruler that came out of it, right? It was prophesied that the Messiah would be as a king. And so all these things pointed to there being a king, but it was that the people got ahead of God. And they wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. And God all along had a king in mind, and it was David. So we're finally seeing David come, and David is just the man to to clean up the mess that Saul made. But whenever we first come to David, he is still just a a teenager, right? And in my mind, okay, I don't know about you guys, in my mind, I kind of compartmentalize. I see David in three different, as three different people. Yeah. You guys kind of do that too? Yeah. At least two. I mean, you've got David, the shepherd boy. You've got, uh, you know, David and Goliath and all of that. Uh, so you've got David, the shepherd boy. You've got David, the warrior on the run from Saul. And then you have David, the king, right? right. And you could even split up his kingdom into uh, where he's going out and leading him into battle and uh, fighting and making war and the conquering king, right? Mm-hmm. To the uh, sage old... Um, wise king right so you've got all different stages in david's life right and he makes good decisions he makes bad decisions he is a human we lift him up as being 
someone super spiritual or someone uh, unrelatable, but in the end, he was just a man like us. And the Bible shows his faults and failures as well as his successes, which makes it more relatable. And he's really one of my favorite, probably one of my favorite uh, characters throughout the Bible. But we're going to be looking and seeing as God works in his life to bring him into the place of uh, prominence, the place where he is actually uniting the kingdom, building the kingdom. Because if you think about it just for a minute, with what we already know from Scripture, that whenever David first takes the throne, uh, there isn't much of a kingdom there. right? Saul comes in, he's a king, but he's more of a tribal king. Okay, uh, The country as a whole is not really cemented together well under him. Maybe a little bit, but not a lot. It's not wealthy. It's not powerful. It's not well-known. It's just a tribal kingdom on par with all the rest of them around him, right? But by the time that David comes and by the time he's finished, Israel is a huge power in that area. They are a kingdom to be reckoned with. Whenever you get to Solomon, he doesn't really expand the kingdom as far as conquering, he is a king of peace, but he expands the wealth. So David expands the power and the territory. Solomon would, would expand the wealth of it. Okay? And then Rehoboam is going to split it all up and mess it every, all of it up. Right? Yeah. But we'll see all that as we go forward on this. But just getting to the passage that we're on tonight, we're going to start off with David being anointed as king. So Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'll read just a little ways down through here. I want to cover, really my hope is to cover chapter 16 and chapter 17. We'll see how far we get. But with that, I'm not going to read all of it. Okay. I think we're pretty well familiar with the, the story and everything, especially with David and Goliath. And so I'll be reading portions of it instead of reading it all. But anyway, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him? from reigning over Israel. Fill thy horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord, and call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto Anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on his height, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him to pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And Jesse made Shema to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are there, are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. 
And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. Uh, now he sent and, w- and brought him in. He was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance, and godly to look to, or goodly to look to, excuse me. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So we'll stop there. But what we find in this is uh, some time has passed. If you're just reading through it, you don't realize it, but there's been a couple years that's passed by, and Saul has been rejected. He's kind of just been uh, stewing on this a little bit. Him and Samuel, uh, their relationship is broken, but Samuel's not glad about it. He's not glad that uh, the things befell Saul that did. He was hoping that Saul would make it good. He was hoping that he would be a good leader, a successful king, uh, for the sake of Saul and for the sake of the people of Israel. He wasn't seeking for Saul to fail. But whenever the Lord came to him in verse number one, uh, he he tells Samuel, he says, how long are you going to sit around and mourn? How long are you going to weep for Saul? So it shows you a little bit of Samuel's heart toward Saul as well as toward the people of Israel. But God basically says we can't continue dwelling on the failures of the past. We can't continue dwelling upon what happened to Saul. Uh, the work must continue. The people must move forward. And so he sends him uh, to Bethlehem, which we find there are several prophecies throughout Scripture that indicate that, of course, Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem and that God was going to make Bethlehem significant, even though at that time it was a very small place and it would have been insignificant. But whenever God tells him to go to Bethlehem, to Jesse, he says, I've provided a king amongst his sons. Samuel's response was what? If Saul knows about it, he'll kill me. Does that strike anybody a little bit strange? If you look at the relationship between Saul and Samuel up to this point, uh, Samuel's character, who he was, the kind of the power and the respect that he had, because it seemed like Samuel was pretty confident he came to Paul, or excuse me, came to Saul, and he said to Saul, uh, whenever he says, I've obeyed the Lord, and he says, well, what means the bleeding of these sheep that I hear, the lowing of the oxen? You know, he was pretty confident in front of Saul to call him out on his misdeeds, right? Mm-hmm. And then whenever, you know, he went through everything, uh, Saul grabbed his garment and he said, this is how God's rendered the, uh, the the kingdom from you, just like you ripped my garment. God has ripped away the kingdom. Hewed up Agag with a sword. I mean, he was pretty incredible old man, right? Yes. But now whenever God comes to him, he says, go to... Bethlehem and anoint the next king, Samuel resists and he says, if Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. That gives us a good idea of what has transpired in the time that's kind of silent there. Saul has increasingly gotten more insane. Mm -hmm. Okay, We find as we continue reading here that there is an evil spirit that comes and troubles him. And as we continue following through after David is anointed and Saul is losing his grip on his kingdom and on reality both, it seems like. Um, He is very jealous. He's very insecure. He's very suspicious. And so it seems as if he's already got his men constantly spying out the area, keeping tabs on Samuel because Samuel's already called him out. And he knows that Samuel's a man of God. And if God has rejected him, 
then God is going to do something else, and he's going to do something else. He's going to do it through Samuel. And Samuel says, I can't go anywhere without Saul keeping an eye on me and checking up on me. And if he finds out I'm going to anoint someone as king, then he'll kill me. And so Saul's already declined a long way where he would dare to, he he, uh, took God's position as leader of Israel, right? He took Samuel's position in offering up the offering. And now he's wanting to take the place of even uh, killing the prophet, killing Samuel, the man of God, to try to hang on to what little bit of power that he's got. And um, whenever Samuel brings this out, God tells him, and by the way, just him being the man of God, he should have enough confidence in God that God's able to deliver him from someone like Saul, right? He's also a man and an old man, right? And for him to go from where he's staying at to going to Bethlehem, he would have to cross right through Saul's territory, right through Saul's hometown. So if you look at it on a map, you've got where Samuel stayed, where Saul stayed, where David stayed. Okay? So he's got to pass right through Saul's hometown. And he said they're going to be asking questions. They're going to be wanting to know. And God says, well, go and offer up an offering. Take a cow with you. Say that you're going up to offer up an offering, and all those things are going to be true. God isn't telling him to lie, right? He says, tell him that you're going to offer up an offering, and as a priest and as a prophet, that was perfectly legitimate, right? And God limited what he actually told Samuel for Samuel's protection. That's kind of interesting to me. He didn't tell Samuel ahead of time, this is all what all is going to happen, He says, I'm just going to tell you the least amount of information so if Saul does catch you and interrogate you, you don't know anything. (laughs) Right? And so God is doing that and even looking out for his maybe somewhat fragile and doubting servant, right? And so whenever he gets there, do you notice how the people respond to his presence in Bethlehem? Mm -hmm. We're getting an insight into, I hate to say it this way, but we're getting an insight into the politics of the time. Yeah. Okay? Because they're seeing this rift between Saul and Samuel. They're seeing this trouble that is brewing under the surface here. And they are waiting to see what's going to happen. And so as Saul is just waiting for Samuel to act, Samuel is trying to keep his actions hidden. He arrives in Bethlehem. And the people's first response is, are you coming peaceably? Because I don't believe they're thinking that he's coming to bring judgment upon them. I don't think they're expecting that he's going to like call down fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. But they understand that he is an authority. He is sent by God, right? And they also know that there is tension between him and Saul. So if he comes, he could potentially be raising up an army to oust Saul, right? He could be coming and bring Saul's blade really against the people of the land and so they're saying your presence here troubles us because you are bringing the the tension to our hometown and so they're worried about it so they ask him are you coming peaceably he's oh yes i'm coming peacefully we're going to have a an offering a sacrifice and so he says sanctify yourselves and in the old testament in the in the law there was a process they had to go through to be ceremonially clean They'd have to go wash their garments and do different things. And then they'd be ready to come and to meet with God. Okay? 
And so he specifically brings all of Jesse's uh, household, his family up, and they're ready to slay the heifer, uh, eat the meat, have a feast together. But he says, before we can do all of this, I've got important business that we have to attend to. Uh, and he says, Jesse, I need your sons before me. God has sent me here to anoint one of your sons. And so they start with the oldest. Okay, that was just the way that their culture went. Start with the oldest. And in man's perspective, in man's way of doing things, the oldest is going to be you know, firstborn. He's going to be the strength. He's going to be the one that inherits the father's household. He's the one that is in charge, right? And so they look upon the oldest one. And Samuel is still stuck. Remember how whenever he came to Saul that he was impressed by Saul? He looked on Saul and he says, you know, he is head and shoulders above everyone. He's of goodly countenance. He, you know, all of these things about Saul. And he was happy with the appearance of Saul because by man's measures, Saul was what you'd want in a king. And so Samuel falls into the same thing again. Even being the man of God, he's still falling into this, uh, I guess, worldly wisdom. Okay, worldly way of looking at things. And he sees the oldest son of Jesse, which is fighting in the army. He is a strong man. He is, you know, uh, everything that they would think that they would want in a king. Mm -hmm. And he says, surely this is the one before me. And then we have the off-quoted kind of uh, famous passage of scripture here. The Lord says to Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so this is the, our uh, kind of a contrast between David and Saul. Because Saul, everything about Saul was how man would do things. Okay, it's by man's uh, perception. It's by outward appearances. It is by human wisdom. Mm-hmm. Saul's the king. Okay, and Saul acted by his emotions. He acted by his human reasoning. He measured out things according to the numbers. He measured out things according to the way that it appeared to him. Never factoring God into it. Right. And so that was basically all of Saul's king. All, all of his kingdom, okay? Whenever he came against an army, he counted the numbers. Mm-hmm. He looked at the weapons. He tried to strategize. That's what he did. But whenever we come to this passage, he tells Samuel, he says, don't look at it through man's eyes. Don't look at it with man's reasoning. Don't look at it through just our human perspective, okay? Uh, what we do a lot of times whenever we're making a decision whenever we're trying to figure out which way to go, we will basically weigh it out pros and cons, right? Mm-hmm. You ever make a list or to make a decision, try to weigh it out pros and cons? Yeah. Say this is all the good, this is all the bad, and you're trying to reason it out by all the things that you can see or perceive. That's the human way of looking at it, right? right. But what it never does, it never factors God into the matter. Exactly. And this is even more important with the nation of Israel because they were God's chosen people. They had promises from God. They had things that they could go back to and latch on because God says, if you do this, I will do this. If you you don't do this, then I will do this or not do this, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so they had a relationship with God. They had promises from God that they could go back to. And God is honorable. He will hold to his word. He'll hold to his promises. And they could have held God to his promises, right? But is it much different for us as Christians? I mean, we're not Israel, but do we not still have promises? Do we not still have a relationship with God? Do we not still have all these examples in Scripture that we can go by? And so for us to only evaluate things the way that the world does, we are missing out majorly. We're not factoring in God to the equation. If we are His children, then He is going to be providing and taking care of us, right? And so we have to always factor him into the equation. Now, as we look at this passage where it talks about uh, not looking on the outward appearance, unfortunately, the way this has ended up coming down to, people have grabbed a hold of this verse and they've used it as an excuse. Mm -hmm. You ever heard it used as an excuse? You know, whenever they're talking about their actions or about their behaviors, their way that they present themselves, the way they dress and the kind of things. Oh, God doesn't look on the outward appearance and they say, that means that God doesn't care about how things look. That's not what that verse is meaning. Right. It says that God looks on the heart. That means that he can get to the core of things. Mm -hmm. And that man can put on an outward facade. A man can appear religious. A man can appear good looking. A man can appear to fit the part. But it could just be an appearance. Mm -hmm. It could just be a facade. It could be hypocrisy. But God can get down to the root of the matter and know the heart of the man to see if it's genuine. And so we can be Pharisees. We can dress up on the outside. We can look the part and all of that. But God can see past all of that. And that's what this verse is meaning. It's not meaning that God doesn't care about the outside, but that God sees beyond the outside. Okay? And a lot of times it's what's on the inside that works its way to the outside. Okay? So to use that as an excuse to basically excuse sin or laziness or sloppiness or whatever in our Christian lives uh, is ridiculous. It's, it's like that saying, we've all heard it, only God can judge me. Which, that's the most fearful one to be judging you. Right. You know, who cares what any man says about me? God actually has an authority to judge me. That makes it scary. Yeah. Right? And so this is kind of what this passage is saying is that God is seeing the heart of the matter. He's able to look inside. The Bible tells us that in Luke chapter 6, verse number uh, 45, and it's Jesus speaking in that verse, says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak, speaketh. Right? So he's saying the outside is produced by what's on the inside. And so if you watch a person long enough, if you listen to the things that are coming out of their mouth, if you're looking at their outward appearances, if you're looking at their fruit, it's going to show you what's going on in their heart. And so just as an example on this, as we're looking at David, we're going to see some of the things that David says. Mm -hmm. That shows us his heart. So you look at what Saul says. Whenever Saul is in a tight spot, whenever he's in a challenge, what comes out of his mouth? No one? Blame. Anger. Excuses. Right? Accusations. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of his heart. But whenever David gets to these places of difficulty, of hardship, we find instead uh, such things as we, as we see in uh, chapter 17. We'll get ahead of ourselves just a little bit. 
we find that whenever David stands before Saul getting ready to go to to fight uh, Goliath, mm-hmm. Saul says, you're not able to do this. You're just a kid, right? Verse number 33, And David said to Saul, Thy servant, the keeper of his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock, and I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Where's his heart at? His heart isn't on himself. It's not on his power. It's upon his God, right? This is why he's so incensed. This is why he's so angry is because Goliath is speaking evil against God and against God's people. He tells his brother, he says, is there not a cause? We come down to the next verse. It says, David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. Okay? And so whenever David gets under pressure, he starts looking toward God, focusing on God. Right? Depending on God. We find whenever Goliath comes out and he says, I'm going to feed you to the birds of the field. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to scatter you in the nation of Israel. David, once again, he says, verse 46, this day will the Lord deliver the end of my hand. And so whenever we start thinking about it, saying that uh, God has found a man after his own heart, we can start seeing David's heart. We see his heart for his people all the way through his kingdom, right? Even whenever he sins with Bathsheba, he has a lapse there. But whenever he's confronted with his sin, he confesses it, right? And comes to God, confesses it, begs God. Even whenever his uh, own family turns against him and is uh, pursuing after him and trying to kill him, he is seeking mercy on those that have done him wrong, which is very Christ-like. Right, And so we see what happens to David whenever uh, he falls in hardship and pressure and difficult circumstances. The things of his heart comes out, and it's much different than the heart of Saul. Right, And this is why God tells Samuel, he says, don't look on the outward appearance, look on the heart. We find even more so the heart here in comparison. Um the first one we see Jesse called Abinadab, firstborn, okay? And said, surely, or no, excuse me, that's the second one, Eliab, verse six. Eliab, the firstborn, right? Well, whenever we come over to, uh, let me see. Verse number 28, we're talking, or chapter 17, verse 28. Okay? Eliab again. This is whenever David comes to the people. He hears Goliath making fun of the people, calling them out to battle, making fun of God. He says, is there not a cause? Um, Verse 28, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. David is trying to call the people to trust God, to serve God, to uh, trust God to fight their battle and to... Uh, deliver them from this enemy, right? He is doing good, but Eliab is angry with him 
And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's belittling David. David has always been extremely responsible. Everything that we see written about David, David was responsible. He was trustworthy. His father depended on him greatly. Every time he left the sheep, he left them with the keeper, right? And it doesn't seem like it was just a few sheep. It seems like it was a lot of sheep. He had lots of responsibility. He says, With whom have thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. We see Eliab's heart coming out. So Samuel looks at Eliab and he says, surely this is the one. And God says, I see what he's made out of. I see his heart. I know what's wrong with him. And he is going to be another Saul. Can you see that in the statement that he's making? He's going to be exactly like Saul. And God says, I haven't chosen him. I've got someone else in mind. And so as you go down through, God says, I've, I've rejected all of these ones. And he goes through all of the seven brothers that are there. And Samuel's scratching his head. He says, God told me one of your sons is going to be king. And he just told me that it's none of these ones. Do you have any other children? He says, yeah, I've got one, but I never even thought to call him out because I know he couldn't be the one. I said this last week, even David's father wouldn't have picked David, let alone the whole nation. So David was really the outsider. Everyone overlooked David and said there's no way that he would ever be the king. Even Samuel, the man of God, even Jesse, David's father, they all said there's no way. They wouldn't have picked him. If they would have put this to an election, if they would have had a vote, David would have been the last on the ballot. Right? And so Samuel says, well, I'm going to wait here. We're not going to eat. We're not going to have our feast until you go get David. And so they sent someone else to take over, keeping the sheep, to bring David in. Maybe they sent Eliab out. I don't know. And so it brought David in. And as soon as Samuel laid eyes on David, God says, this is the one. And once again, his appearance was different than the rest of them. It says that he was ruddy, which means red. Maybe it was just that he was fair-skinned or light-skinned. And of a fair uh, appearance, he was youthful. Okay? He was, I guess, a, a decent-looking guy, but he wasn't strong and masculine and big and uh, his skin didn't show like weathered from the sun and all these different things. In a way, he was just kind of a pretty boy. Was there any way to tell about how old he was there when that Most people think that he was around 16 or less. Okay. So like 15, 16 years old, somewhere around there. Uh, so he wasn't old enough to go to battle yet, but he was old enough to be entrusted with the sheep and so right around there somewhere. Um, but there's no way to know for sure. Right. There's a little... You, I've done the math before, but it's been a long time. I can't remember. Because you can see how old he was whenever he came into being the king and different things. But anyway... Um, so he wasn't the type of guy that you'd just pick out and say, he would make a good leader. He would be a good king. But God says, I'm not going by uh, man's appearance. I'm not going by human reasoning. God says, I'm going to pick the run of the litter. That's essentially what it is. He's the youngest one. He's the smallest one. He's the least favored one. He's the run of the litter. He said, I'm going to pick him. I'm going to take the small things of the world and confound the, the big things. Mm -hmm. And that's what God always does. He always takes the small, the inferior, the overlooked, and then he does great things with it. Because if there is someone who is strong, if they're mighty, if they're powerful, if they're, you know, they check all the boxes, 
God says, no, I don't need them. You look at Gideon, for instance. God says, if I leave you with 10,000 men, you're going to think you did that yourself. Let's get rid of all of them. Let's get an army of 300 to fight the Midianites and all this huge nation that's like sand on the seashore for numbers. Let's get it whittled down to a small enough to where you're going to know you didn't do it yourself. Right. You come against Jericho, I'm going to pick the dumbest battle strategy you've ever heard just to let you know you're not the one that did it. Yeah. And God says, I'm going to take to build my kingdom, to be my heritage that my son is going to be born through, that the Savior of the world is going to be born through, I'm going to take the least likely candidate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some people even speculate that maybe he was redheaded. It says that he was ruddy. And so a red-headed Jew would be really weird. But you realize he also has Gentile heritage because you've got Ruth the Moabitess, you've got Rahab the harlot. They're both in there, right? So who knows what might have happened in there. But anyway, God says, I'm going to pick some of the most unlikely candidates. I'm going to take the one that no one else would pick, and I'm going to make something terrific out of it. And that's what God's doing here. And David is anointed king. And it says the Spirit of the Lord came on David, and that's one of the keys, okay? Because we can do nothing without Christ. We can do nothing without God's Holy Spirit, okay? Anything that we try to do of ourselves is going to be fruitless. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, verse 14, and it left Saul, okay? Now, as a side note on that with it leaving Saul, the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was different than the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is promised that the Holy Spirit will indwell every believer at the moment of salvation. That we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that we are kept until the day of the redemption of the purchased possession, okay? The Holy Spirit abides with us all the way through. He doesn't come and go. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. We look at Samson as an example. Holy Spirit would come upon him. He would do a mighty feat. The Holy Spirit would leave him because he was basically led of the flesh all the way through, right? And so... Going back to this just a little bit, the Holy Spirit's on David, and Samuel leaves, and David is still there, and I can just kind of imagine this, okay? In my mind, maybe I'm a little bit weird, you all know I am, but anyway, Samuel anoints David, he tells David why the anointing is, David understands he's going to be king. It doesn't seem like his brothers understand it. I don't think that Samuel told the brothers, but they just thought maybe he was being anointed for a special place to help Saul or to help Samuel. Or they didn't know what the anointing was. They just knew he was anointed. There was something special about him, but they didn't know what it was. But David understood he was going to become king. Okay? And so Samuel leaves. He's walking off into the distance. And David and his family look at each other and they're like, Now what? And Jesse's like, well, go and relieve Eliab or Eliab of the sheep over there. Go back to work. So David's been anointed king, and he goes back to being a shepherd. And here's where it's difficult for me. Okay, He's got this bit of information. He has a desire to follow God and to do what God has for him to do. But now he's sitting in the pasture field, sitting and watching the sheep, and just wondering how all this is going to work. Because there would have been years that went by, right? Even between chapter 16 and chapter 17, we don't know how much time went by, but some time went by, okay? 
And so David has this knowledge, God's got something great for me to do, but how is it all going to work out? What do I need to do to become king? Wouldn't that be your question? But David never attempts to make himself king. Mm -hmm. David never uh, schemes and plots and plans. He never tries to jockey for position. He never tries to make himself king. In a sense, David's life is almost geared to the way that's like, God, if you want me to be king, you're going to have to make me king. You see that in the the way that it plays out? Mm -hmm. David never tries. Even whenever Saul is trying to kill him, even whenever there's opportunities for him to seize the throne, he says, I'm not going to do it. He says, I'm not laying my hand on God's anointed. If God wants me to be king, he will place me on the throne. Mm-hmm. And he just continued trusting God and being faithful where he was until God opened the next door and God got him there, right? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the important lessons from this passage, I believe, is for us in our minds, we spend so much time, so much effort, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what our part is, what must I do, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever in reality, God is more than able to order your steps. He's more than able to open the doors. He's more than able to put things in place to make his will happen. Now, we have to be willing to move our feet. We have to be trusting him, following him, but he can make it happen, right? And if we are trying to figure it out, if we're trying to make it work, if we're trying to somehow merge our will and his will or force his hand, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be discouraged. And so anyway, David goes back. He's herding the sheep. He is playing his harp. Such a kingly thing to do, playing a harp, right? (laughs) David is so much of a contradiction. You ever think about that? You have David the shepherd setting out in the field, tending the sheep tenderly, fixing their wounds, leading them gently, shearing the sheep, doctoring their herds, playing music to them and singing his psalms, the sweet psalmist of Israel and the giant hunter. (laughs) Right? But here's the, the, the funny thing about all of this. While David is out there perfecting his heart playing ability to an audience of sheep, God is using his talents and his abilities, working it in his plan to bring about using David as David is. Not David trying to become what he thinks a king should be, Mm -hmm. but God is using David as David is, using his talents, his abilities, his interests, and he's folding it into his plan. And so what we find at the end of chapter number 16, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. An evil spirit began troubling Saul. And the people said, hey, you have an evil spirit troubling you. You need someone who's good at playing soothing music to come in and calm you down whenever you get really irrational and bipolar. Do you think Saul realized that an evil spirit was troubling him? Because it specifically said the servants came to him and said something. Because you know how even in your life, things can bother you, things can go on, and... Other people notice things more than you do. Well, that's that's a really good point. Saul didn't really have a... He wasn't very spiritually perceptive. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, I kind of think back to Samson. Whenever Samson had his, his hair chopped off, remember? Yeah. 
And it says that he perceived not that the Spirit had departed him. Right. I think that's kind of how Saul was here. The Spirit left him, and he didn't realize it. Because he had already ignored the Spirit. He had already rebelled against God. He had already resisted it over and over. Quenched the Spirit, if you will. To where he didn't even realize that the Spirit was no longer with him. But other people noticed. And so I don't know. But it does say that the other people noticed and said, Hey, this is a spiritual matter. And we need to get someone who can play music. And someone speaks up and says, Hey, I heard David is a good harp player. David was trying to figure out how does me being a shepherd get me into the palace? And suddenly one day while he's out tending the sheep, a messenger comes and says, Saul wants you at the palace now. And David's like, this is new. And he shows up and Saul says, I hear you can play the harp. And David's like, is this what it's about? Okay, God, you know what you're doing. And he starts drumming his heart. Saul calms down, right? And so he becomes Saul's music boy. Whenever Saul is having trouble, whenever he is particular crazy, David sees Saul at his worst. And so Saul is throwing a fit. He's throwing javelins at people. He's ranting and raving and cussing and out of his head. And the servants come and say, hey, David, come here and calm down the beast. Right? Yeah. And David's like hiding around the corner, strumming gently on his harp, and Saul starts like the Pied Piper, right? That's how I picture it. So, anyway, David, as a teenage boy, playing his harp for the king with the knowledge that one day he's supposed to be the king. And David has this warfare going on in his heart and in his mind because you know the devil's troubling him too. And he's trying to figure out how all of this fits together in the puzzle. He has no clue. And so he continues faithfully serving God, faithfully serving the king, and doing what he can with the gifts that he's been given, and God is using them, right? And it brings out another important thing for us too, and this may be a bit of a side note, but I think it's important. We find there's a principle here that the spiritual realm is affected by the things that we um, expose ourselves to such as music, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we will, like when we're talking about music and the good and bad of music, we'll focus on the, the words and the lyrics, but I don't find anything as far as the words and lyrics here. It's the music. Mm -hmm. And so if music can drive away evil spirits and bring the presence of God, it could also drive away the presence of God and bring in evil spirits. What right. does that? So we don't need to just worry about the lyrics of what we're singing, but we also need to uh, discern spiritually the things that we're listening to, whether it grieves the Holy Spirit within us or whether it uh, feeds our soul, mm -hmm. because it can do both. Right. And even if you get into occultism and uh, demonic worship and different things like that, uh, they are very musically centric. Oh, yes, definitely. And so there are certain certain things that is going to uh, have a positive spiritual impact and a negative spiritual impact. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible tells us that we are to try the spirits to see if they be of God. Right. And I think one of the keys to that, just to, to, to make it practical, is God has given us emotions and feelings, mm -hmm. right? Yes. I'm not saying that we should be led of our emotions, but our emotions work almost like uh, the gauges on the dashboard, mm -hmm. okay? 
And as we are listening to music, as we are watching television even, different things, they are geared to have an emotional impact on us. If they didn't affect us emotionally, we wouldn't want anything to do with it. That's how it attaches us. That's how it, and we have to look and see what kind of emotions that it is drawing out of us, how it's making us feel. And that's going to be a, a great gauge, not necessarily a totally accurate gauge, but it's going to be a great gauge on how it's affecting us spiritually. Right? So anyway, moving on from that, I don't want to labor on that too long. So David's brought to Saul. He plays the music. He is in the palace and whatnot, but he's not a permanent fixture there. He's kind of a temporary one. He's called when he's needed. He's sent away when he's not. He's not always there. He's not like Saul's right-hand man. Okay? He's just one of Saul's servants. And so David is going through all this and just waiting, seeing, okay, how is this all going to work together for what God has revealed to me. And so there's just a season here, I guess going from season to season for a while he's with the sheep. And then now he's going between the palace and the sheep. And God is using this time as he's around the palace, as he's around the king, as he's seeing the things going on, he's getting a little bit of a training both from the good and from the bad. But he's also getting exposure to all these people that are important in the land, all the people of power, and they are seeing him, and he has the Holy Spirit upon him. He's behaving himself wisely. He has this charm and whatnot that endears people to him. Everybody likes David, right? And so that brings us to chapter number 17. I know we can't, we're about out of time. And I can't give, I can't do justice to chapter 17 in the few minutes we have left. But I do want to look at it a little bit because it's important it's, and it is a passage that we're familiar with. But anyway, in chapter 17, David is back home tending to the sheep. Uh, his three oldest brothers are with Saul out in the army. If you were looking at it, you would think that still Eliab has the highest chance of becoming the king because at least he's fighting, at least he's in the army, right? But anyway, David's at home. Eliab and his two brothers are out there with Saul. And the Philistines are on one side of the valley. The Israelites are on the other side of the valley. And they're there for 40 days. The Philistines have a huge army. Israel, eh, not so much. But the Philistines have put forth a challenge. They said to keep from a huge battle, lots of bloodshed, all these things going on, We'll put forth our best men. We'll take our champion. You put forth your champion. And whoever wins out of the two of them uh, will be the winning side. And the other side, the losing side, will be the, the servants, will be the slaves. Israel didn't have a whole lot of choice but to submit to this, to these rules. And so every day Goliath is coming out. He's basically three meters tall, nine foot six, nine foot nine inches tall. Three meters. Mm -hmm. And so he's huge. He comes out and he taunts the people every day. Morning time comes out, taunts the people, goes back to the camp. And they just sit there looking at each other mm -hmm. across the valley. Saul and his men are shaking in their boots. They are scared to death. No one will move. And if you look at the figures on this, the one that should be going out and facing Goliath is who? Saul. 
Okay. Why would Saul be the one to go out and face Goliath? Because he was in charge of the law. Okay. He was the king. He was supposed to protect the battle. Yeah. And so whenever the people first demanded a king in chapter number 8, they said, we want someone who's going to lead us, who's going to fight our battles for us. Mm -hmm. Right? Saul was head and shoulders over everyone else. So if we're looking at height, because that was Goliath's thing, right? Yeah. Send their biggest, we're going to send our biggest, and Saul's just kind of there on his knees like, I'm not that tall. (laughs) (laughs) And so anyway, no one's willing to fight. Saul actually puts out, says, whoever will fight, Whoever will go out and win this battle, I will make him my son-in-law. He can marry my daughter. He can have this prestigious role. I want to give him all of his wealth and all of his riches, and I will make his father's house free in this nation. What that means is tax-exempt. Okay? So whoever does this is going to be wealthy and never have to pay taxes again and be part of the king's family. So basically Saul offered everything that he could besides the throne. Little does he know the throne's going with it. Yeah. But anyway, he offers this up, and no one is willing to bite because they said, we're going to die. There's not even an inkling of anyone going back and recounting the victories that God had won. There's no one that... I'm, I'm kind of wondering where Jonathan was. You look at some of the things that Jonathan has done, I can imagine Jonathan being the one that comes up like David saying, is there not a cause? I mean, he was the one that said, hey, the Lord's able to uh, defend by many or by few, right? And so I do wonder where Jonathan was. That's interesting to me. But anyway, whenever David appears on the scene, he sees everyone cowering in the camps, and he hears Goliath coming out, and what catches his attention is the words that Goliath is using against the God of Israel. And so this isn't about him. This isn't about his pride. It isn't even about his king or his household, his family, or his nation. It is about the prominence of their God, about God's glory. The Bible says, let all things be done to the glory of God. And this is what he was calling back to. This is what was catching his attention, is they are insulting my God. And I have all these promises. I have such a great God Surely God will help me to defend his name before these people because we as a people, we as God's chosen people are here to be a light, to be a witness, to be a testimony for his name in all nations. Mm -hmm. And this is the opposite that's happening right now. We are not fulfilling God's purpose for us. So if we were to stand up and do what God has us here for, surely God would bless that. That's David's thinking throughout all of this. And so whenever he comes and he confronts the people, he's making them look bad. He calls them out and says, you're a bunch of cowards. Right? That's essentially what he's doing. And they said, but you're just a teenage boy. You're just a shepherd. You just play your little harp and play with your little sheep. (laughs) And they're offended by it. And Eliab is especially offended by it because he is the older brother. And the younger brother's making him look bad. And so he lies against his younger brother. He maligns his uh, his character here, trying to salvage his reputation a little bit, I think. But just something that stood out, stood out to me as I was studying this is the ones that 
challenged him and hindered him the most were those of his own household. His own family were the ones that were the biggest hindrance, the most trouble against him. But it has always been that way. Even whenever Jesus was on this earth, you remember how his brothers came and mocked him and ridiculed him and refused to believe upon him? Those of our own house are going to be some of the times the ones that will be the ones that cause the most problems for us whenever we step out and we try to serve God. And so that's what happened here. And anyway, just, just kind of breezing through this a little bit. After he says all of this, word gets to Saul. And this is also, or he, they tell Saul, there's a guy out here that's calling us a bunch of wimps that says he would be willing to face Goliath. And Saul says, I don't care who he is if I don't have to go send him out. Right? No one else is lining up for this position. So whoever's applying, they got the job. And David comes and stands before him, and Saul laughs at him, basically. He says, you're but a youth, and Goliath is a, a soldier, a warrior from his youth. Right? And that's whenever David says that, uh, that uh, little monologue, if you will, about how he killed the bear, how he killed the lion, and God was able to empower him to do that. And his God was able to give him the victory here. And Saul says, okay, well, you got the guts, then go ahead and go for it. He gives him the blessings on it. Okay? And Saul tries to get him to wear his armor. And this was always the funny thing. Saul was the biggest guy there. He tries to give David, which by what we see in this account, wasn't that big of a guy, tries to give him his armor. David puts it on and says it doesn't fit. On top of that, he says, I'm not used to wearing this. This isn't familiar to me. I haven't practiced. I haven't proven this, right? He says, you're trying to get me to defeat the enemy by your methods that you're even afraid to use. I'm going to use what I'm familiar with. I'm going to use what I'm familiar with. And he throws off that. He gathers his five smooth stones, and he takes his sling. Now, remember I talked earlier about the the harp. And how he's out there playing music to his sheep, not having any idea that God is going to use that talent and that ability to get him in the palace, right? Now, also through all that time, being out in the, the fields with the sheep, he's a teenage boy, he's bored, he got tired of playing his music, and he picks up his sling, and he's aiming at rocks, he's aiming at stumps, right? And he's just out there practicing in the woods, just out in the wilderness, practicing with that sling. And he thinks the only reason he's doing that is for his own entertainment and to defend the sheep because he could, you know, if a wolf was coming along, he could hit it with a rock, put it with a rock and go. But it was basically uh, not that... I know they did use him some for war, okay? But it wasn't that big of a weapon. Right. You know, I can remember whenever I was little playing with a slingshot. Yeah. You know, I shot my brother with one a few times. We got in some trouble with him. But anyway, he had this sling, he had this rock. And he says, this is what I'm familiar with. This is what I'm comfortable with. Didn't have any armor. He didn't have any kind of weapons. He had a sling and he had his staff with him. The tools of a shepherd. He comes out standing before Goliath, not realizing that all of these things that he has been getting used to, all these talents, these abilities that he's been honing, that he never understood would ever have a value, God is employing them to put him in the place of prominence that's going to get him to the throne. He stands before Goliath. Goliath mocks him, laughs at him, and he says, what am I, a dog? You come to me with a stick? 
you know, what do you do? When you, you come against a dog, you got a stick, or you get a rock. There's been lots of times we've been walking or taking a walk or whatever, and if there's a dog, we have a dog that was at the end of the lane of the other house that we lived in, and if the girls were walking down the lane, they'd take a stick with them, pick up a few rocks. Dog comes after him, they had pelt him with the rocks, or if he got too close, they'd whack him with a stick. Right? And that's what Goliath saw. He saw David. He says, what, you come after me like a dog with a rock and with a stick? And he says, I'm going to feed your carcass to the buzzards, basically. And David says, you come at me with your sword and with your spear and all these things, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he says, my God is going to feed the armies of the Philistines to the buzzards this day. I mean, talk about some trash talk, but he's giving God the credit through it all. And whenever it comes time to battle, it says that David runs toward Goliath, swings that sling around, lets it go, the rock flies, and he's not cowering in what he is running toward him. And he slings the rock, hits Goliath, Goliath falls down. David doesn't even have a sword, and so he has to borrow Goliath's sword to cut Goliath's head off. That's pretty incredible, right? Mm -hmm. And all of this is from the least likely candidate using the least likely methods to win this battle. And all of it is that he is dependent upon God. He's not trying to learn how to become a king. He's not trying to make out ways to become a king. This isn't part of his plan, three steps to kingship. He is just living his life, trusting God and allowing God to establish his steps. He comes to battle, the Holy Spirit's within him, leads him in this, uh, brings up this holy zeal within him, and causes him to take on a giant head-on with the tools of his trade that he is familiar with. God gives him the victory. The people of Israel follow out after the Philistines because they're not going to honor their agreement. And they follow after the Philistines slaughter many of the Philistines, come back to pick up the spoil. The people of Israel benefit because of David's bravery. And David gets a sword and the head of Goliath takes him with him. Okay. And Saul starts saying, okay, find out who his father is. It's not find out who David is because David's been there. Find out who his father is because he's getting ready to be my son-in-law. His father's getting ready to be, uh, you know, all these promises that I've put for his entire family, right? Mm -hmm. He says, find out whose father he is. And David comes, bows before the king, and he says, I'm the son of Jesse. Okay? And chapter 18, it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. So he has come into... The king's palace, he is a uh, established presence there in the king's palace. He's best friends with the king's son, right? Who is similar in character and temperament to David, right? And he is done with going back to the sheepfold. He is now a warrior, okay? But going back to what we've saw so far with all of this, David has relied on God from the very beginning and every step of the way. Even as a young man, this is still David as a teenager, he already has an understanding 
God can take care of me. Mm-hmm. He already knew whenever I fought the lion, whenever I fought the bear, it wasn't because I'm just some stud. Because I'm so powerful and so good, God is able to give me victories. God is able to be with me. God is watching out for me. And he was trusting in God with the bear and with the lion. He was praising God with the talents and the gifts that God had given him. He was just living his normal life and allowing God to move him forward in his plan. And that's what strikes me so much in this is because even myself, I'm constantly trying to figure out what I need to do to make it work. I'm trying to figure out the next step. What would God have me to do? God would have me to be faithful. He'd have me to use the the talents, the giftings, and abilities that he's given me now and be faithful in what he's given me. The Bible says that he that is faithful in little things, then he will make us rulers over greater things, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he did to David. And So how do we advance in God's plan? How do we advance in his kingdom? Be faithful with what he has given you, with who you are with your giftings, your talents, your temperaments, all of these things that you are now, be faithful, serving, and trusting God, and God will make things come into place. But it takes us trusting Him, following Him, being faithful to Him, and then He is able to exalt us mm-hmm. in due time if that's what He has for us. And so it comes back to trusting God throughout all of it. Uh, so anyone have anything to add to it, anything to say? I hate that I breeze through the story of David and Goliath, but I think we all know it pretty well, right? How long have you done it the most? Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, he was old enough that he was entrusted with a an army of a thousand before this. Mm-hmm. So he would have been a little bit older than David, I'm assuming. But also, between the time of... David being anointed to the time that he came to Saul would have been a couple years. From the time that he came to Saul as a musician to the time that he came out to fight Goliath would have been a couple years. So by this time, he probably would have been 18 to 20, and Jonathan probably mid-20s, late-20s, something like that. I'm not sure. Jonathan would have kind of been like an older brother to, to David in place of his older brother that wasn't very good. <laughs> but everybody always looks at the story of David and Goliath and sees it as, uh, you know, fighting our battles and killing your giants, right? Mm-hmm. There's even the song you always listen to about the giants, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the whole story to that is putting our trust in God through all of it because even him fight, fighting the giant, it wasn't him in pride or arrogance or anything. It was just him following God's lead throughout all of it. And God made everything fall into place. And even after he killed Goliath, he didn't immediately go to the throne. What we're going to start looking at next week, Lord willing, is uh, troubled times. Because you've got a long period of time where David is back and forth in uncertainty with Saul being unstable. And Saul spends more time and energy as a king chasing after David and trying to keep David from becoming king than Saul actually spends being king. Right. 
And so David's like, okay, well, I killed the giant. I calmed the beast, right? Tried to. And I'm still, I'm just a soldier. I'm just fighting. I'm just part of the army. How am I ever going to be king? And we know in due time, he becomes king. Even where he finally becomes king over Judah, he's not king over the entire nation of Israel, is he? He only gets part of a kingdom. and He has to wait six years to become king over the entire nation. So all the way through, it doesn't go the way that we would plan it or plot it, the way that we think that it should go. But God was doing it all throughout a process. He knew what he was doing. He made it happen. Okay. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for all these passages that we have in Scripture, Lord. And as we're studying through the, the kings, Lord, we, we thank you for the, the wisdom and for the knowledge that we can glean from it, Lord, and see how you work through their lives and how their actions and uh, attitudes played into how you were able to work, their, work your will out in it, Lord. We ask you, Lord, just to help us, Lord, to... Be like David, behave ourselves wisely, allow your spirit to lead us, Lord, and allow you to do things in your own way, in your own time. Lord, we thank you for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.